I'm Scott Thompson. Welcome to the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Thanks for listening. Tell your friends. Feel free to subscribe. Coming up on today's show, Jody Wilson-Raybould, former attorney general and a person at the heart of the SNC-Lavalin affair, is writing a new book, which will drop just in time for the federal election. Why are we not repairing 24 Sussex Drive, the prime minister's residence? By the time it's done, we'll probably be two or three prime ministers in. Get her done! And the Mueller testimony continues. We'll decode it here. It's all coming up on the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. All right, Jody Wilson-Raybould, former justice minister and now independent MP, has written a book. Uh, It will be released ahead of the election. Many were questioning uh, why Jody Wilson-Raybould or Jane Philpott had not spoke out in regard to uh, Gerald Butts, former advisor to the prime minister's office, being uh, reinstated, brought back in, um, not in that capacity, but to... Uh, to uh, advise going into uh, the next election, helping the prime minister get to get reelected since he was sur- uh, such a part of the team uh, that got him reelected uh, in the first place. Of course, you might remember Gerald Butts was uh, uh, the prime minister's advisor during the Jody Wilson-Raybould uh, SNC-Lavalin scandal where uh, uh, Jody Wilson-Raybould alleged that uh, both Butts and uh, former clerk to the Privy Council, Michael Wernick, uh, pressured her, along with other members in the Prime Minister's office, uh, to give SNC-Lavalin a, deper- a deferred prosecution agreement. Uh, she said they didn't qualify for that. As a result, she, of course, was uh, jettisoned out of the Attorney General's role and eventually out of the party caucus in, in the whole nine yards and now sits as an independent. So how will all of this play as uh, we head into the next election? Uh, whether it's this book or whether it's the reappointment of, uh, of Gerald Butts, the acknowledgement that he's back into the fold. Let's bring in Christo Avalis, Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council, postdoctoral fellow in history at the University of Toronto, and is with us now. Christo, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Thanks for having me. So your thoughts uh, first, uh, Christo, on Gerald Butts returning to the fold uh, in the uh, Prime Minister's office tent. I mean, it's, it's really interesting. I mean... I'm not super surprised, but it's not like it was expected either. I don't think it's a shocker, but you would have thought that maybe, you know, Gerald Butts would play a role in the next election, but, you know, in an informal capacity, that he would sort of come to the meetings maybe, that he would be somebody that Justin Trudeau could call, but that he wouldn't take a formal role. Given that, you know, the scandal is still fresh, given that he resigned, but we still don't know why he resigned, really. Like, we might have theories why we might have inferences why but there was never a specific reason given uh, and so it's it, it is somewhat odd that he's come back and that it sort of reignited at least a little bit the whole scandal you know this is the guy who's associated with the snc scandal he's associated with the departure of wilson raybould and phil pot to a certain degree cesar chavan and so it is a bit interesting to bring him back and um you know, I, I don't know what to make of it fully. Certainly Trudeau and certainly the, his, his, uh, the rest of his core team thinks that Gerald Butts is, is going to be an integral part to getting him elected again. So I think maybe they felt the, the opportunities outweighed the risks. Uh, that was my next question. I mean, this is a massive gamble. We know how much this story resonated the headlines for a, for a long period of time, the Jody Wilson-Raybould uh, demotion and the involvement in the SNC-Lavalin uh, affair. Um, is it, we all know he's that good because we've heard it, 
But is this the only person the prime minister can can get to 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 help him get reelected? Uh, is it worth the gamble thinking that as soon as you mention his name, the SNC-Lavalin, Jody Wilson-Raybould scandal comes back up? And as you mentioned, there's still unanswered questions there. Yeah, I mean, from from my perspective, I mean, I'm not sure whether it's worth it or not. I guess we'll find out in October, right? To a certain degree, we'll have to see, like, you know, was it worth it or not? I don't know if we can answer that question. But, uh, I mean, I think that it's a mixture of, you know, Trudeau and the other uh, people think that this guy has great talent. I'm sure there's other talented people in the Liberal Party or people that could be brought aboard. But it might also be a case of this is somebody that the prime minister trusts. And when you're, you know, a, a person in a high place of power and people always want a piece of you and they always want to influence you, having folks you can trust is important. So if the prime minister really trusts Gerald Butts because he has this long professional and personal relationship with him, then maybe that having somebody in a key position that you really trust is very much worth the risk. And I mean, I'm not sure if that's the case, but maybe Justin Trudeau in that sense feels that that, that it is the case given that strong personal relationship. Um, does this resonate, does this story, meaning uh, Gerald Butts being back in the fold, does this story resonate with Canadians uh, as much as the Jody Wilson-Raybould? Well, clearly it doesn't because it was all over the headlines uh, when Jody Wilson-Raybould and the SNC-Lavalin uh, uh, story were top of mind. This one doesn't seem to be getting as, many tra- as much traction. Why were we more concerned in this story the first time and we're not concerned as much, it appears, with Butts' edition now? Those are a whole bunch of factors. One, it's, it's you know, the summertime, and that plays, a, that plays a role. There's less media being driven. More people are on vacation within the media, but a lot of people just aren't, you know, it's not frame of mind right now. A lot of people are are sort of resting up on politics because they know that, you know, come, say, Labor Day or a little bit before, depending on when the election's called, it's going to be, you know, two months of, of nonstop politics on the radio, on TV, on the Internet, on Facebook, on Twitter, on Instagram, and on and on and on. So I think that's part of it. I think another factor is, is that, you know, with at least when, when, when this scandal first broke, there was also like the apparatus around it. There were the committee hearings. There were the hearings where Jody Wilson-Raybould gave that testimony and everyone was, mm. you know, on, on, it was, everyone was on rivets, you know, listening. And then Gerald Butts gave his testimony and a lot of people really, you know, responded to that. And there was the Wernick testimony and this all happened in very quick succession. And then there was a bunch of mystery about why did Gerald Butts resign? Like, you know, did he do anything wrong? And he never really claimed to do anything wrong. So the whole question is, well, why is he resigning mm. if he did nothing wrong? So either he's resigning because he did something wrong and we don't want to talk about what it is, or he's resigning as a fall guy, but then what's he falling for and who is he falling for? And then so that's the whole bunch of questions. Him coming back matters. And, of course, we're talking about it today and other people have talked about it. But – you know, him coming back to work with Justin Trudeau, I mean, the motivations are a lot clearer to people. He's coming back because he was a key part of the 2015 campaign, and Justin Trudeau trusts him, and he, and he knows Justin Trudeau better than most people. Um, so it makes sense that he would come back, even again, even if you feel that it's risky, there's a rationale that's clear to people, and that makes it less scandalous. You know what I mean? Whereas, again, there was so much mystery during the the Lavalin, the SNC scandal, and then the fallout in the in the Liberal caucus and in the the PMO and all, and that's that, that was largely due to when you think about it, uh, in retrospect, the way they handled it. No, yeah, certainly there was like 
you know, whether or not, and I mean, we, we, we don't have a crystal ball, but I kind of feel like if the liberals would have almost admitted to the fact that, look, we're playing favorites with corporations, we're doing this to help S&C because they're a corporation that has a lot of good Canadian jobs in Quebec, but not just in Quebec, and we're doing it for them, and I know this may look icky, but like we're doing it, right. and they wouldn't be the first government, liberal yeah. or conservative, yeah. you know, federally, to have done that, nor will they be the last, because I can guarantee you that, you know, that, you know, Andrew Shear will face similar, you know, and people will say, well, Andrew Shear will play favorites with the dairy industry, for instance. And there's always accusations of prime ministers playing favorites with companies or industries or using regulations to benefit them politically and their party politically. And I think owning it probably would have created a scandal, but maybe not to the same extent. Hmm. And it wouldn't have this because the secrecy got everyone to pay attention. Right. And then when the bombshell blew off, like blew up, we were all looking. So, Whereas, Christo, do you, you think know, this was less about SNC-Lavalin and Jody Wilson-Raybould and that whole ordeal and more about the fact that it looked like we had caught the prime minister uh, not telling the truth or in a lie, hence the McLean's uh, headline uh, cover with imposter underneath it. He's not, this was less about the, those issues and more about he wasn't the man that everyone thought. Well, I think to a certain degree, I think it's less about the S- the mechanics of the SNC scandal, a.k.a. You know, Justin Trudeau is, is, is putting his finger on the scale for a company because, again, right. Canada was founded by prime ministers and people putting their fingers on the scale for railway companies. That's as Canadian as the Mountie and hockey and maple syrup is, is corporate patronage by, <laughs> by our prime ministers. That, it's Canadian history. But the reality is, is that I think it hurt Trudeau because he did try to hide it. But I think the Wilson-Raybould thing hurt more because it struck at this identity Trudeau had, this identity that, you know, he was going to – uh, diversify his cabinet, and not just with token appointments, but but to bring in women and, and racialized people and indigenous people because they're going to challenge the way politics have been done. And that's one of the reasons why you want to bring in people who never would have been able to be in cabinet 30, 40, 50 years ago. They do politics differently. So the fact that Butts is back and Jody Wilson-Raybould and Jane Philpott aren't, is that resonating? I don't know. I mean, to me, it does signal that, you know, maybe Trudeau fe- feels that you know, the old way is the better way. Like, you know, maybe it wasn't real change as much. Maybe, you know, you know, getting rid of, of two female cabinet ministers, one of whom was indigenous, and ensuring that, you know, your the, the old boys club is more or less intact is, is maybe a sign that Justin Trudeau is governing much like a traditional liberal or conservative, you know, prime minister would. And I mean, Canadians might be okay with that, but that's not Trudeau's image. And I think, again, when you talk about the imposter, I think that's where it came from. This idea yeah. that, that Trudeau's image is suffering. And it was also with the SNC scandal, it was also related to, you know, Trudeau said he was doing this to protect jobs. Yet we know in Hamilton that, you know, the government has done nothing to protect, see, uh, you know, the pensions of steel workers while, you know, the company CEOs have taken their bonuses. You could say the same thing for Sears workers who have been left out in the cold while CEOs have reaped in their bonuses. So, you know, it was all of these hypocrisies and the striking at the image. It's less about SNC. And yeah. it's more about Justin Trudeau's right. image as, as doing politics differently that hurt him. Christo uh, Abelis is with that's us. That's where the imposter thing comes from, I think. Christo Abelis is with us from the University of Toronto. Christo, uh, surprised we haven't heard from Jody Wilson-Raybould or Jane Philpott on Butts being back. Uh, obviously, Jody Wilson-Raybould's announced that the book's coming out, but I'm surprised we haven't heard anything about Butts in particular. You know, not really. I wonder if, if one, maybe they have nothing to say. Like they've felt like they've said what they need to say, 
and like what's been said's been said. Maybe that's part of it. If you're thinking maybe more cynically, more tact- tactically, maybe they feel as I've noted and as you know you've likely noted before. You know, the summer is a doldrum for media coverage and media interest from the public, um, and so taking your shot in the middle of July maybe isn't the time to do it. And maybe Jody Wilson-Raybould feels that this will be better an accompaniment to when her book launches. One, it'll probably help sell the book. But two, you know, the book's coming out kind of within that general election period. And as such, maybe taking her criticisms of Gerald Butts and Justin Trudeau for that time is a better, um, better tactical use. Because again, if she goes after Butts now, even if it's effective, she sort of used that round. She shot that bullet and she can't really put that back in the chamber. She can try again, but it'll lose its effectiveness. So I think that the timing, if they're going to criticize the return of Gerald Butts, I don't know if this is the best time for it you know, politically. Uh, in, in a press release, it says about the book, uh, urges us to build upon the momentum already gained and they're on the reconciliation journey or else risk hard-won uh, progress being lost. Do you think this book will in any way be incriminating to the Liberals? How do you think they feel about this, knowing that it's coming? I mean, I'm sure that they're not happy about it. I think Wilson-Raybould's whole narrative has been that you know, she was actually very encouraged by the narrative of the liberal campaign because, again, she wasn't really – she's not a longtime political operative. Again, that was her first election win. She doesn't really have a lot of connection to party politics. It's not like she's been, you know, a liberal riding association president before this. And I think she felt that whether it was on indigenous issues, she's talked a bit about electoral reform. She sort of feels that this government, once they got into power, sort of backed away from the things that gave them power. And she feels that – you know, maybe the values that they ran on still have value, but they're at risk of losing it because of, you know, a return to cynical politics and what have you. And I think her narrative is going to be if you elect independent MPs like me, I can keep that flame, that flame burning in Parliament and hold whether it's a liberal or conservative or NDP government, I can hold them accountable to that vision that we all that we all want. I think that'll be her argument. And in terms of direct crimination, I'm not sure. We'll have to read the book. But, you know, people will read things into it even if they're not there. So if she Mm. talks about, you know, failures on reconciliation, will people say, well, that's actually an allusion to Justin Trudeau's broken promises to Indigenous people? And I think in that sense, you know, the subtext of this is going to be very important because it could very well be the case that without mentioning Justin Trudeau, uh, although she might mention Justin Trudeau, the book could be seen as a direct criticism of him and his government and his policies and what have you. Christo Avalis has been with us, Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council, postdoctoral fellow in history at the University of Toronto. Christo, is always, fascinating discussion. Thanks so much for the time. Much appreciated. Thanks for having me. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. 24 Sussex Drive, the PM's residence, even though he doesn't live there, uh, it has been certainly for past PMs and is, uh, and you know, it's been no secret. I think going back to the Jean Chrétien days, uh, complaining about uh, how bad shape uh, 24 Sussex was in. But now it seems to be a, a political hot potato. Nobody wants to touch it. 
because I guess it doesn't look good if all of a sudden uh, taxpayers are spending millions of dollars in order to preserve uh, the prime minister's home. But it, it really has nothing to do with partisan politics. I mean, if a uh, prime minister was to start the work now, he probably wouldn't even see the results. It's the next prime minister or perhaps the one after that <laughs> that would that would reap the benefit of a decision that's made now. But is it about the prime minister or is it about preserving a piece of Canada's history? After all, it's not the prime minister's house. It's our house. So uh, what do you do with it? Uh, Some have said just demo the darn thing and start over. It'd be much cheaper than trying to renovate it. But with that goes all of the history. So where do we go and 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 who's going to pay for it? Is this something that the National Capital Commission should just move forward on and keep the politics out of it? Uh, why are we seeing renovations going on to the House with no one really making much of, of, of a debate about it? But when it comes to the prime minister's particular residence, that's a different story. Of course, Prime Minister Trudeau has never lived, well, other than with his dad and his family, uh, never lived in 24 Sussex since he has become uh, Prime Minister, instead the cottage at Rideau Hall. Let's bring in uh, Barry Padel- uh, Padelski, uh, uh, Barry Padelski and Associates, architects, planners, and heritage consultants, and on the line with us now. Barry, thanks so much for the time. Much appreciated. Did I pronounce your name correctly or did I butcher it? Yes, you did, Scott. You pronounced it perfectly. Okay, Barry. I pronounced Scott. <laughs> <laughs> Good for you, Barry. Thank you. Uh, so, give us some backstory on Twenty Four Sussex. Why should the public care more about this? Well, I think that the public should care because it is a, a federally owned uh, heritage property, like many other. Uh, heritage buildings in the national capital, and it's been vacant for over a decade. And uh, it's really, really a kind of a silly Ottawa kind of thing. It just feeds the, um, you know, the conception people have across Canada that in Ottawa they don't know what they're doing, and it's a terrible example of that. What is it that the Canadian public wants? To see the Prime Minister of the day uh, sleeping out front in a tent? Um, <laughs> why are we not so concerned when we're renoing the House of Commons? Well, uh, you know, I think that uh, Canada uh, and Ottawa has five official residences in the capital. And we do this because there are official residences in other countries, and we like to provide this kind of uh, amenity for the Governor General, for the Prime Minister, for the uh, Leader of the Opposition, and there's a few cottages as well. Uh, Is that a good idea or not? Um, I think it's something that uh, people kind of expect that there ought to be some kind of accommodation for for Prime Ministers and Governor Generals at the public expense. But uh, really the silliness here, and it really is architectural silliness, is that we have this asset. It is a quite beautiful building right on the Otter River, and it is in a serious state of decay, and we've only ourselves to blame for letting it decay. That is, we, the government, and although I'm not a member of the government, I'm a taxpaying mm-hmm. uh, citizen like anybody else, but why would we allow things to decay in any other city if um, uh, you know a building is allowed to decay, then the property standards department comes and they put an order against it. <laughs> and uh, there have been all these orders against it, but nobody does anything. And I think it's because um, 
the succession of prime ministers, Harper first and maybe uh, Justin Trudeau second, uh, feel that uh, it's politically inappropriate for them to uh, have the prime minister's residence renovated and they seem to benefit it while other Canadians might be living in social housing. Or that being said, the Prime Minister of the day, if he made the decision tomorrow, would probably not even set foot in the place and perhaps not even the next Prime Minister. We understand it's in such disrepair, it could take quite a long time to fix. Yeah, actually, Scott, you're, you're quite right. I think that the time it would take to fix is probably you know one-fifth of the time that it's been left vacant. And so it's about... Um, a legacy of architecture in the capital, and whether or not we feel collectively responsible for doing that. And I think that um, nobody has had the guts to say that uh, here's a classified heritage building. Uh, It is quite beautiful, and it could serve a valuable purpose. It doesn't have to be the residence of the prime minister, because the prime minister currently is living quite comfortably in a 10,000, 12,000 square foot um, uh, building on in Rideau Hall. What's the square footage of 24 Sussex? It's about 12,000 square feet. Okay. Yeah. But he's uh, and his family are comfortably living at Rideau Hall. Uh, future prime ministers could continue to live there. That's fine. And uh, if the government only had the guts to take a decision, they could turn it into a conference center or a visitor center. But even if you public. did but even if you did that, Barry, you'd still have to reno it. So what difference does it make if we're renoing it for a museum, another one in Ottawa, which there are plenty, or, or a, a conference center or a historic site or, or what have you, you're still gonna have to put that money into reno renoing the building. So yeah. why not just do the same thing for the PM's residence? Uh, you're 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 quite right. I think that um I'm sure that um people sitting in Vancouver or the north end of Winnipeg or whatever, saying, what is going on there? Why can't they just make a decision in terms of the overall annual budget of the National Capital Commission or Public Works? It is very, very little. And I think that what they haven't come to grips with is uh, having the courage to make a decision to just go ahead and do that. Any other country, whether it's um, you know Italy or Britain or France, or United States, uh, they have their residences for their presidents, and uh, that's never the, the controversial debate. It's probably the politics of what happens inside of them that's uh, of curiosity to people. Is this a bad time to decide whether we need this official residence or not? Because it's easy to say, well, this is all going to cost too much, so just take it away, just do something else with it. Uh, is it worth perhaps building a new official residence for prime ministers? And again, as you said, utilizing this building for something else, or is it better just to, to stick with tradition and go at this building and just do the renos that are needed? Well, I don't think that you need to build a new residence for the prime minister because the prime minister is currently... In Rideau Hall, yeah. It, you know, it's called Rideau Cottage. Yep. And it's not a cottage, it's a little mansion in Rideau Hall. Mm. And so, now, what would that be used for if the Prime Minister wasn't in it? Well, uh, initially it was uh, built to serve as the, uh, the residence for the assistant to the Governor-General. Mm. Wow. And, uh, <laughs> <laughs> that, Canadians might have a problem with that one. The other one's not so much, but maybe that one. <laughs> but it could be used. Sure. As, well, the Rideau Cottage could be used 
as a visitor center or for office space for Rideau Hall. Um, all these buildings are quite wonderful buildings, and uh, all they need to be, uh, all you need to do is to maintain them as if you would maintain your own home, and then there's no controversy. It's uh, one of those uh, pretty idiotic things that, uh, I mean, I'm an architect in Ottawa, and I actually have government contracts, so I shouldn't be saying idiotic, but um, <laughs> it really is. Um, and every year this gets more expensive. It gets more expensive, and uh, it becomes more and more embarrassing because nobody has the guts to do anything. Now, is the building, I understand I read somewhere, the kitchen was still being used. Is there still parts well, of this yeah, residence uh, that are being used? What, what the report is that the kitchen is being used to make meals for the Prime Minister and then deliver it kind of like Uber Eats a couple of blocks away to where they're living. If that's true, um, I mean, I heard that report, but even that is uh, uh, worthy of... Uh, you know, a, a Tom Green comedy sketch. Yeah. Boy, <laughs> is it ever. <laughs> By the way, Tom Green is in town in Ottawa right now, and he's uh, helping in the campaign to try to prevent the uh, the um, the egregious addition to the Chatelorier. Oh, right. Himself. Another. There's another, our, yeah. Boy, another oh, one of our Ottawa sillinesses. So what about the NCC? Where are they on all of this? Because I thought it was their job to keep all this stuff going. Should this be taken away? Should the politics be taken out of this, and this is just a job for the NCC to decide? Or, you know, again... It should be. Uh, the NCC, though, needs to get um, financial allocation. Sure, to yeah. Report. So they're a crown corporation. It's their job. Uh, and uh, but they haven't been given the money to do it. As far as the Chatelory is concerned, the NCC has been silent on that, sitting on their hands, uh, handing it over to the city of Ottawa as the proverbial national capital hot potato. But uh, but with the chateau, it's it's more about the design than it is the reno. I mean, it's at, at least they the at least they've right. decided to to move forward on something. It's just the design they're upset about. Uh, was obviously that doesn't seem to be happening here. Why is it because the, it is the sitting prime minister that, that's supposedly supposed to be there? Is that why there's more uh, of a microscope on or magnifying glass on on twenty four Sussex than there is like uh, the chateau, which of course there is, and and even the renos to the hill. Well, I think that uh, you're, you're quite right. Um, it's only become a political issue because of the cowardliness of a succession of prime ministers and yeah. their uh, PMO, which is the prime minister's office. Somehow they think it's going to be political, it's going to reflect badly on the current prime minister, and I think Canadians are more mature than that. But at the end of the day, why doesn't the politician of the day just come out and say, I am renovating my house for the next two or three people that are going to live in it? Because really, they'll never see it. I'll vote for you for Prime Minister, Scott. There you go. (laughs) Uh, How much of this is a security issue, Barry? How secure is 24 Sussex? Is it easier to secure than, say, Rideau Cottage or or other areas around there? What does security play in all of this? I think that uh, we're pretty paranoid these days, and, uh, and 24 Sussex has its a gated, secure uh, site. So you can't really get into it uh, very well anymore. I mean, at one point, there was a... a at one point, you could almost drive right up to it many years a, ago. Yeah. yeah. And there was there was a kind of burglar that snuck in on the Chrétien. Yeah, yeah. And I think that either Jean Chrétien or his wife kind of hammered them off with a shoe or something yeah, like that. Yeah. But you can't do that anymore. No. 
No, I remember the, the first uh, uh, many years ago, uh, 12, uh, sorry, I'm probably 20, 30 years ago now, uh, driving for the first time around that area and saying, you know, thinking, oh, let's go see the prime minister's residence. And then, my goodness, uh, you realize, other than an RCMP vehicle at the time, there really wasn't a lot of security. Uh, is it easier to secure Rito than it is 24 Sussex or a newer residence? Well, the newer residents would have the same problems. It's about the perimeter of the building, and right. there's a fence around it, a pretty robust fence, and it's got security guards. Same thing at Rideau Hall. Uh, it's also secure when you come close up to it. So that's not really uh, the the issue. And what is issue is political will, and we don't seem to have that. Where do you think this is going? Because at what point does a courageous politician stand up and say, you know, the longer we wait, the more this is going to cost us. So, again, let's fix it now for the next prime minister before the bill goes through the roof. I think it's probably when we get Scott Thompson as the prime minister (laughs) that will make a decision. Is that something that, you know, uh, do you think this will be addressed after the next election, no matter who gets in, that it's time to finally do this? I would hope so. We all thought that it was going to be addressed after the last election, and uh, but it wasn't, and... uh, God knows why. It's uh, part of, I guess, the entertainment value to Canadians uh, at our own expense that uh, this happens in Ottawa. And uh, I regret that because Ottawa is a beautiful city and uh, it is uh, you know, an attraction to residents who live here, an attraction to visitors. And uh, when people go by the, uh, you know, the vacant 24 Sussex Drive, they just shake their heads. Yeah. The only thing that's missing is the boarded up windows. Um, <laughs> You're right. Who should pay for this? I mean, is there, uh, whenever there's renos or, or special projects, sometimes uh, other corporations will jump in. Is that out of the question? Is there any way to raise funds for this issue? Is there any way to do this to keep everyone happy? I'm sure that you could raise private funds. I guess the question then is that... Is that lobbying? <laughs> is that lobbying? And in fact, we do know that when... Uh, Gary Trudeau lived at 21st Sussex. There was uh, private fundraising for the swimming pool, and that became a scandal because it was perceived that the developer that paid for the swimming pool got special privileges. I think that I, as a taxpayer, would just pay for it out of my own pocket, that is, taxpayer's pocket, get it done, and then it's no longer tainted by any kind of scandal, and uh, it would be a place that... uh, the Prime Minister and his family could live, but also it's used for um, meeting purposes and reception purposes as well. So it has a function which um, is now taking place somewhere else, and we have to pay for it somewhere else, so why not there? As long as there is another residence for the Prime Minister to live in, does is this an issue? Is this an issue for a sitting Prime Minister? I don't think it is. I think that it could be very simple to say, it's not going to be for me but it's going to be for my successors, whoever they are, Conservative, Green, NDP, Rhinoceros Party, who knows. But uh, we don't seem to have that kind of will right now to do it. And remembering in history, uh, you know, like Prime Minister Mackenzie King lived in his own house on Laurier Avenue. And is so- that possible, or is that impossible considering uh, security issues and such? Are we moving towards a time when government officials simply live in their own home? Well, um, if uh, we know that uh, when Gandhi was the, uh, the head of the, um, the Indian 
government in the early days before Nehru, he lived in a little hovel, and he had just a little white cotton uh, gown, and that's all he wore. So maybe prime ministers can set that kind of example, take an oath of poverty, and uh, that might increase their credibility with the public while we spend uh, millions and millions on other things. I don't know. There we go back to the tent theory again, though, Barry. That's right. <laughs> uh, Barry Padalowski has been with us. Barry Padalowski Associates Incorporated Architects, Planners, and Heritage Consultants. Barry, thank you so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. And thanks for calling, Scott. Bye-bye. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. All right, we are uh, out of one eye, squinting, watching uh, the Robert Mueller testimony, which is now going on. Uh, took a break for uh, between morning and afternoon sessions. We're now into the afternoon session. And um, at times it's been fascinating and riveting, and at times you, you get lost in the legalese of it all. Uh, that being said, we're going to play you a clip from earlier this morning. This is uh, Congressman Gerald uh, Nadler opening up the discussion and talking about exoneration, the report, and the president. Did you actually totally exonerate the president? No. Now, in fact, your report expressly states that it does not exonerate the president. It does. Let's bring in Claire Finkelstein, professor of law and philosophy, University of Pennsylvania Law School. She is with us now. Claire, thank you so much for the time. Much appreciated. Are you there, yes. Claire? I apologize. Cut out for a minute. That's okay. Uh, I'm here. So, Claire, what are your thoughts on what you've seen transpire so far? Well, I think there's a different quality of the morning from the afternoon. Um, Mueller was very, very taciturn in the morning. He referred over and over again to the report. Uh, the Democrats were quite prepared and and quoted extensively from the report. Uh, very often, Mueller did not seem to remember or be able to affirm the particular passages uh, that were quoted from the report. Uh, Republicans did their own quoting from the report uh, in the beginning, but as time went on, they tended to stray a little bit more from the details and there was a fair bit of uh, grandstanding. The Democrats did some of that, too. Uh, and uh, in general, of course, because Robert Mueller was so taciturn, uh, the members uh, of the Judiciary Committee took more and more, I think, to just making their own statements and trying to convey to the listening audience what they wanted Mueller to say and wish he could say but was not willing to say. Compared to the afternoon? The afternoon, there's been a little bit more uh, back and forth, just a little bit. He does refer repeatedly to the report, um, uh, but um, he is seemingly a little bit more comfortable uh, confirming things that uh, members of uh, both parties say, um, referring to the report and making factual confirmations of what they say, and um, uh, generally confirming the details of Russian interference uh, in the 2016 election. One of the things that I find very interesting is that the Republicans appear to have uh, changed their strategy a little bit um, with regard to the morning's hearings. Uh, and and uh, we see that also reflected in the afternoon, uh, which is they are not... 
uh, hopping up and down and saying that the president is exonerated by part two of the report, which was the tack that Attorney General Barr originally took when he gave his press conference. For a while, the Republicans continued to maintain that part two of the report did exonerate the president, but now uh, they do not seem to be insisting on that anymore. There is some slippage with regard to how much the president is exonerated by part one of the report, namely the question of whether or not uh, the Trump campaign conspired with the Russians um, to uh, interfere in the election. Uh, The Republicans are trying to insist that the report exonerates the president, whereas Robert Mueller appeared to be trying to say that there simply was not sufficient evidence uh, to conclude that the president conspired or that members of the Trump campaign conspired with the Russians to throw the election. And and that's a little bit of um, a slippage. There's a little bit of a gap between those two that hasn't been fully brought out in the discussions to date. And I do hope it gets clarified uh, in the remaining uh, part of the afternoon's testimony. So that being said, when the clip we just played of Congressman Gerald Nadler say, asking directly whether this exonerates the president or not, and then Mueller saying no, and and, and, and basically confirming all that, how much how much uh, significance, how symbolic is that statement? Is that answer? Well, it's it's interesting. It's it's important uh, because again, uh, while it's clear in the report. Uh, that the uh, president is not exonerated in the report from obstruction of justice charges. Nevertheless, when William Barr first spoke to the report, he said that the report exonerated the president on obstruction of justice. And many Americans still believe that to be the case. So I do think that that was a win for Democrats in having Robert Mueller explicitly confirm that, in fact, the president was not exonerated. Um, so the president is trying to blur the line between no collusion and exoneration. Well, that's on the first part of the report. So that with regard to the first part of the report, the question is whether or not the president and members of the Trump campaign conspired with Russia right. to Uh, attempt to throw the election. With regard to the second half of the report, of course, the question is whether or not the president obstructed justice. And uh, Robert Mueller was at his most explicit with regard to the uh, claim that the president obstructed justice. The report details a number of instances in which the president arguably obstructed justice, and Robert Mueller was fairly clear that the reason that the president was not charged was because of the principle, the Department of Justice guidelines, that a sitting president cannot be indicted. Now, in the beginning of the afternoon's testimony, he came back and made a very slight correction to that claim. And this is an important point. Hmm. He came back and said, we did not consider whether the president could be charged with obstruction of justice on these facts because we had already determined that a sitting president cannot be 
indicted. But then was asked... He did not go down the road at all of obstruction of justice as a formal matter. What about the significance of after the president is out of office, could he be indicted? Right. There was some discussion about that. And in fact, I myself published an op-ed on that issue this morning, uh, suggesting that it is really important to figure out why a sitting president cannot be indicted in the minds of Robert Mueller and uh, officials from the Justice Department, because on one view of that issue, the statute of limitations would continue to run And it might be the case that the statute of limitations would be passed by the time Donald Trump is no longer in office. Certainly, if he wins a second term, that could very, very much occur. On another theory, however, the statute of limitations might be what we call tolls. That is, it would be suspended, would not continue to run. uh, And then the president arguably could be charged when he is no longer in office. Uh, That is something that Mueller refused to speculate about. Um, But one of the uh, members in the afternoon tried to question him on that issue, and uh, he would not he would not address it. Uh, Many said, including Mueller, that it's all in the report. Uh, He was shying away from from any testimony at all. Uh, it's all in the report, was said. Are we learning more than we didn't already know in that initial report? Are we decoding anything? There is nothing new in what he said, but it does make a powerful impression to have him confirm some of the details that are already written in the report. Um, And so um, it is quite impactful, I think, to hear him say, as we did in the afternoon, um, that yes, he can confirm that the president was not telling the truth on this instance, this instance, and this instance. Um, That is something that the report makes clear, um, but that if you haven't read the report, as most Americans uh, have not, um, it really doesn't hit home until you see uh, members of Congress address it and you see Robert Mm. Mueller confirm it. Uh, So that is a powerful moment. And then it was also a powerful moment, uh, of course, to hear Robert Mueller say that potentially, yes, the president could be charged Hmm. in theory after he is uh, no longer president, though, as I said before, he did not address the statute of limitations issue. Does this change minds? How are Americans reacting to this? Does it change minds or just reinforce what they already think? I suspect that it will send many Americans to the actual text of the report, Um, at least many Americans interested in the details following politics uh, who hadn't read it before, that to the extent that Americans thought they knew what was in the report from the discussions of commentators or from William Barr's uh, press conferences or from the very brief appearance that Robert Mueller made uh, in uh, May, um, they may start to think, gee, maybe I really didn't know what was in this report. Maybe it would be worth uh, a look. I think it also sent members of Congress uh, to the report in preparation for today, knowing that they had to appear to be knowledgeable about the report and actually had to quote from the report if they wanted to get Robert Mueller to actually answer their questions. Um, 
And so I think many members of Congress actually uh, read the report in preparation for today's hearings who had not read it before, I would venture a guess. Uh, My guess is that makes quite a big difference. How impactful it will be for ordinary Americans and whether or not it starts to change the mind of some Republican members of the House um, and uh, potentially the Senate uh, towards impeachment is really the big question. Uh, I suspect that it won't make a vast difference in that regard, um, but it's very hard to tell. Uh, These things can flip very suddenly uh, in in electoral politics. So what we've seen so far, are there any clear winners or losers? How are the Republicans reacting so far? How are the Democrats reacting so far? Well, my big sense uh, is that the big winner, in, in some sense, is Robert Mueller himself, who has succeeded in drawing attention to the report, which is clearly what he wanted to do. Um, The Republicans have been hammering over and over again on the question of the legitimacy of the investigation, the Steele dossier, the fact that Robert Mueller refuses to answer whether or not his team interviewed Steele himself, the question of Peter Strzok and whether or not they investigated the investigators, all of which Mueller has been steadfast in insisting is beyond the purview um, of his mandate of his report. Um, I think that uh, Republicans, my guess is, did not score a lot of points with that line uh, and that uh, it is same old, same old. Uh, The Democrats, to the extent they were grandstanding and there was some of that, uh, didn't say anything new, mostly credited uh, Mueller for his patriotism and so on and talked about the president not being above the law. Um, But the the most impactful part was the part where Democrats actually read in a detailed way from the report and discussed specific instances of uh, obstruction or uh, interference by the Russians with the election and a potential engagement of members of the Trump entourage uh, with that interference. And in that sense, I think, again, Mueller is sort of the winner here because the report did end up speaking for itself in those uh, interactions, and that may have a powerful effect. How do you think Donald Trump will react to this, say, come by Friday, say by Thursday or Friday, especially, and along with the White House? Um, at one point, he said he wasn't even going to watch this. Um, right. And then I think he changed his tune as, as the day came closer. But, and apparently uh, that may not be a change of tune because his calendar was already clear. There you go. <laughs> so uh, how, how will he react? How important is his reaction? Well, uh, I have heard the theory and, and in part believe it that he was extremely anxious about this testimony and indeed uh, his former uh, aide Amoroso was uh, on television a few days ago saying that's why he was attacking these four uh, congresswomen as being unpatriotic and so on to distract attention from the Mueller testimony which Mm -hmm. he was so worried about uh, in the run-up to it. My guess is we're going to see more of those uh, distraction techniques Um, But he himself may end up being a little more relieved than he expected uh, because Robert Mueller said so incredibly little and just kept referring 
uh, everyone back to the report. Uh, my guess is the uh, cries about witch hunt and so on will continue, but he will try to spin it as this is now over and, uh, and laid to rest and I'm exonerated. Uh, Mueller keeps pointing to the fact that there are ongoing investigations. Uh, he's indicated um, very clearly that he can't speak about those and, and many times rebuffed a request for him to discuss uh, the Stone investigation. Hmm. Um, and uh, so I suspect the matter is not over, but in the wake of this testimony, it may quiet down for a little while until we have the next bit of news. Will chance of send her back resonate again to distract from this? I think it's very possible, and uh, it was it was quite interesting to hear the suggestion that those chants uh, were potentially highly orchestrated, that there are section leaders in those rallies that uh, start those chants, that they don't start by accident. My guess is that the president has played out his political hand uh, with regard to those uh, congresswomen uh, sufficiently at this point and maybe looking for new sources of distraction. Uh, I certainly hope that's the case uh, because those attacks have been uh, extremely divisive for the country, uh, indeed for the world, and and very disturbing. On that um, note, on that note, Claire, and and you know, I, I'm I, I'm wondering if if send her back will be the mantra as opposed to lock her up as we head into the next election. That being said, yes, he's been well be. he's been highlighting uh, the four progressive Democratic women, the squad per se. Uh, they've been characterized. We shouldn't probably be using those terms. That only fuels all of this. But at the end of the day, he's been he's been trying to paint the entire Democratic Party with the with these four people. That being said, once we and the Democrats move on to uh, the next stage, which is electing a leader and so on and so forth, and let and, and even assuming, say, it's it's Biden at this point, um, those women are pretty much out of the picture because this the focus will now be on him moving forward. Uh, but send her back. I think will come back to resonate. Is 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 this a hand that that he's going to have a hard time playing as we get closer to the election, and these people are more out of the spotlight, and the focus is more on the leader? Well, I think it depends very much who the Democratic nominee ends up being. Um, uh, as you point out, uh, if uh, Joe Biden is the Democratic nominee, uh, we may find less discussion of this. But um, the president may be preparing by attacking uh, females, uh, representatives who, uh, who are women of color. Um, he may be prepared to uh, attack uh, Kamala Harris um, or, um, or other potential candidates of, uh, of color. Um, and uh, he is surely stoking the uh, racial divide in this country, and some have even said sort of trying to push us into a race war um, to play to his base, um, but also to distract. And so uh, while it may not play effectively uh, with a white male nominee, uh, if the nominee is female or if the nominee is a person of color, uh, my guess is we'll see a lot of uh, racial and sexist politics on display um, as part of his attacks on that nominee. I believe this is extremely unfortunate for the country. Uh, it would be better for all of us if we uh, 
if the candidates could be debating the issues, but I fear that's not uh, where this campaign uh, is going to go. Claire Finkelstein has been with us, professor of law and philosophy, University of Pennsylvania Law School. Claire, as always, thank you so much for the time and insight. Fascinating times. We'll be watching, and I'm sure we'll chat again. Thank you. Thanks. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML. This is the Scott Thompson Podcast, available on Apple Podcast and Google Podcasts or wherever you get yours. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review so you don't miss a thing. I'm Scott Thompson, and thanks for listening.